Welcome to the Future Forward podcast, an unusual tech dialogue brought to you by Masdar City. This season, we're exploring innovations and technologies of the future from around the world. I'm Nermin Negm, the acting head of marketing and communications at Masdar City, a world-class innovation hub and a pioneering sustainable urban community in Abu Dhabi. And I'm Lucy Hedges. I'm the former technology editor for the Metro newspaper in the UK and a BBC presenter and all-round massive gadget geek. Over this series, we are focusing on the cities of tomorrow, travelling across the globe to talk to the experts who are making it happen in the cities that are changing the world we live in. So where are we heading to today, Lucy? We are heading to London. So there wasn't really any need for me to get on a plane, um, if I'm being honest. But geographical <laughs> logistics aside, we are talking to the first woman to found and become CEO of a green energy company. She has since gone on to head up government think tanks, sit on boards of leading green energy bodies, is the president of the Energy Institute and a non-executive board member of the Crown Estate. So please unfasten your seatbelts and welcome to the Future Forward podcast, Juliet Davenport, OBE. Hi, Julia. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Future Forward. You make me sound amazing. I'm going to come on more often. <laughs> you are amazing. Yes. How did your journey go in becoming the first woman CEO of a green energy company back in 2001? I mean, that must have been totally pioneering. What was it like? What inspired you to explore green energy back then? My journey was that um, I actually came from a family of rally drivers. So I came from a very high carbon world originally. So I didn't start that. I wasn't brought up in that world at all. Um, and I went to university and um, in my third year, I studied atmospheric physics where I got interested in climate change. And that was really the spark of it. Took me quite a while to figure out what to do with that. Uh, sort of, I worked a bit in government, a bit in academia, but eventually I met a brilliant entrepreneur in Greece, actually, at a conference. And we started talking about the concept of how did you, could you get individuals involved in the conversation around green energy and involved in doing things themselves. And that was really where it started. And then the journey itself, I, I don't think I really knew what I was letting myself in for, trying to set up an energy company. I thought it'd be quite simple, obviously not. <laughs> um, and, um, and I think I just kept putting one foot in front of the other, to be honest. You kept coming across problems, funding, licensing, software, all these different things coming together. And eventually, we, we managed to get it working. It was quite an extraordinary moment, but it was... Yeah, it was a little bit lonely, but I think also just being slightly naive was quite helpful because I think if I knew what I was going to get myself into, then I probably wouldn't have done it in the first place. What's interesting, Julia, about, about your journey is that green energy kind of back then wasn't understood as it is today. So climate change, low carbon, this is an industry that didn't really exist when you first started out. So this is, you know, you took a massive dive in the deep end and it clearly shows that you were really passionate about this. Yeah. And, and I think I think also nobody, as you said, nobody really knew. It was quite embarrassing going to meetings when you tell people what you do and they all kind of looked at you as if you're a bit mad. Yeah. Um, I spent quite a lot of time at a European level um, negotiating on massive energy charters and massive international agreements on, on security supply, actually. And, and what was interesting about that is that 
every time you came back to it, for me, renewables were this wonderful technology that basically could deliver on climate and they could deliver locally as well. So it's a bit difficult to put a big power station in your back garden, but you could put a solar panel on your roof. Yeah. And so you change the dialogue on energy completely um, and technology becomes much closer to people's homes. So and that's what inspired me, really, was this concept that people could take back control of where their energy came from and how they used it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you're clearly someone with a really deep knowledge and experience of the renewable energy sector. Like I said, you've got loads of passion and, you know, a commitment to business as a force for good. And you're not just about advocating for solutions to climate change, but you're actively creating them as well. So, you know, you've essentially spent your entire career seeking to transform the UK um, energy market by helping homes and businesses to be a part of this sustainable solution to climate change. So on that note, I want to talk about your work with the Crown Estate. You know, now this is a property developer in the West End of London, for those of you who don't know. Um, you were appointed as a non-executive board member um, back in 2020. So what do they do and what is your role? Talk us through that. So it's, it's a really interesting role there. So the Crown Estate has a London property, so it owns significant parts of London real estate. It also has rural estate and it, and it also owns the seabed. I think what's really interesting for us, because we're a long term holder of property. So sustainability then becomes hand in hand. And since I've joined the Crown Estate, they've gone this amazing journey to really discover how sustainability can be embraced at the the core of their policies on what they're going to do in London. And um, it's quite challenging because you actually have some very old buildings. You have some classic buildings. And so you thinking about retrofitting sustainability is really, really hard. But what we believe is, one, we believe it is the purpose of the Crown Estate to do that. Secondly, we also believe that people will want that. Office space and living space needs to be sustainable going forward. Um, So we're looking at traditional methodologies, but also new technologies, new ideas. How do we integrate those, both in terms of practice and ways of working, but also in terms of the, the physical infrastructure itself? Yeah, you're mentioning there the classical architecture as a key point in implementing sustainable measures in the UK, which is really interesting because in Mazdar City, we're embraced traditional architectural elements. You know, we're trying to implement active and passive design and as um, in our sustainable developments. In fact, we're actually building the first net zero mosque and it's designed after the first mosque in the UAE. So can you talk to us a little bit more about How's the Crown Estate taking on these very old buildings and retrofitting them with sustainable technologies so that they develop sustainably moving forward? That is probably the bigger challenge is the fact that we have an existing infrastructure and we have to retrofit that. And I think the first part of the work that we've done is actually measuring. So we're measuring all the energy usage in every single building. And that is absolutely the first baseline. And and most organizations do that to a point, but they then don't look at the data. So data is your friend with an existing building. So you can understand what is its existing performance and where have you got the gaps? And therefore, what do you need to look at? And one of the technologies we've looked at um, and we're we're potentially going to test as well is a new air conditioning sort of technology, because obviously cooling in these buildings is going to become more important as we see global temperatures rise. So understanding how you reduce the energy usage of these these technologies that you're going to need to be able to operate in these buildings. And we're working with an organization, I think it's called Artis, which has an innovative way of using a fan technology. You're not trying to chill the whole place. You actually put it around where people are working. So one, you reduce the fact that you're not having to 
cool everything. But two, it's directional. And three, it's much slower. So it doesn't feel, you know, when you walk into an air-conditioned um, building, you get a real coldness to it. This is a much gentler cooling um, and works better, particularly in places like London, which doesn't need massive cooling, just needs enough so that you can actually continue to work. Where, where is London, sorry, in terms of sustainable future tech? And do you think that London is being innovative enough? In fact, actually, before you answer that, what does innovation or being innovative mean to you? <laughs> so innovation and innovative mean two things to me. So there's technology part of it, because a lot of our technologies were designed in, high, in a high carbon world. So um, where energy was cheap, um, there's loads of it. And so people didn't really think about how to make things more effective from an energy point of view. Most appliances are designed to be either cheap or very functional. They're not designed to actually be much more efficient. Now, we've seen the big shift in that in terms of refrigeration, in terms of cooking, in terms of all the appliances you might see in somebody's everyday home. But previously it wasn't. So in terms of the innovation technologies, looking at how you build in low energy into those technologies is the first step. The next part is actually what what new technologies are you going to need? So if you're looking at decarbonizing London, you're going to need two or three things. You're going to need significant electrification of transport and significant electrification or district heating systems. So that is going to take a big shift. So that's a big another big infrastructure play. And we're beginning to see some electrification. There's new systems in London where looking at curbside charging because obviously most Londoners don't have a driveway where they can put an EV in. Um, charging for bicycles as well. So those of us who want to cycle um, but don't necessarily want to go up the hills without a little bit of help so so that infrastructure is moving forwards and and there's another organization i work with called connected curve who is looking at how do you bring that kind of infrastructure to inner, inner cities where you have both ev charging electric bike charging but you also build in sustainability space so you can build in biodiversity hubs in the same space and that thinking i think is moving forwards it's actually about implementing it though Lucy that's the biggest challenge is is a lot of the local authorities in terms of their regulations themselves how do they actually deploy some of these technologies or these new methodologies at pace that's the real difficulty I think and that's where we need to see much better leadership yes it's not just about technologies also about leadership within local government and national government I think it's really difficult when you have such an old city like London. I'm actually curious to ask you, Lucy, as a resident of London, do you feel like, do you actually see these changes coming on? Do you see more people adopting electric vehicles? Do you see electric charging, you know, stations on the streets? Because there's such narrow streets, narrow sidewalks, winding roads. I think it's very hard to, you know, adapt the city, especially all the older areas of it with all these technologies. Yeah, what I am seeing is London in particular is really boosting its EV infrastructure. I think a few years ago it was it was really in trouble, you know, the government's pushing this kind of EV um, agenda and it's, you know, I was writing a lot about electric cars and how this move to electrification is going to be the future, but the infrastructure wasn't level-headed with it. It wasn't wasn't moving at the same pace. But even where I live, a lot of cars on the road, parking on the main road, and they've got the infrastructure to um, charge their cars from their homes. I'm seeing more of that. There's loads of water fountains around London, which I think is great. Recycling is a big thing here. So, you know, there are small, not, not, not necessarily small, but not major things in place that are kind of screaming that London is incredibly sustainable. But there were small little innovations and infrastructures in place that I think are putting us on the right path. 
Yeah, and I, and I visit. I mean, I visit London a lot, so I, I I come into London as a visitor, and and things like what's really interesting, things like the Elizabeth Line as a visitor is a massive improvement. Yes, in terms of that transporting yourself across London that that's made occasionally I do cycle in London so I have a bike at, at the Paddington station where I, I jump on my bike and cycle around London but I have to say occasionally I get a bit lazy and get on the Elizabeth line because it's so easy and it's so quick can you tell us what it what that is Juliet for listeners I think we may not I mean I'm not familiar with it what is the Elizabeth line is it a, a, a cycling track is it no 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 so it's a new uh it's a form of tube isn't it Lucy I mean it's, mm-hmm. it's, it is it's a big infrastructure tube so if you want to go from Paddington and get to Liverpool Street you can get there in two st- three stops four stops I think it is and compared to all the other tubes it's clean <laughs> yeah well, that's, <laughs> that's really important yeah <laughs> But it is, it's a really interesting, that kind of infrastructure sort of underpinning a bunch of different shifts in a city is so important because it means that people embrace it. If it works and it's clean, um, then people will embrace it and and stop sort of snarling the city up in terms of traffic as well. So I think I think you need you need these infrastructure play big infrastructure plays to be able to support a city. So you can work in individual buildings, which is what the Crown Estate is doing, but you also need the facilitation infrastructure too. Yeah, it's kind of a sort of all encompassing effort. It can't just be heavy on one side. It needs to be a group effort, essentially. Yeah, exactly. So I want to talk to you, Juliet, about your um, being a founding member of the Powerful Women's Energy Leaders Coalition. So you're very much focused on helping women achieve our goals in business and in tech, which I love. Another thing I love about you. Um, so is there allyship in the sector and how can it be nurtured? Well, it, I mean, it's been a really long haul. So I think the, the original foundation of Powerful Women is just to start to talk about the fact that, one, there were very few senior women in the sector, to um, start to think about career paths and how people could progress in the sector and really start to provide some figurehead leadership so people could see the sector as a female-friendly sector. Because one of the challenges for the sector is that it's going to need significant numbers of engineers. It's going to need significant numbers of uh, sort of new employees over the next sort of like 10 years to deliver on the energy transition. And if it doesn't attract women, then it's going to not, it's going to fall short of that. It can't employ enough people, basically. But Juliet, we're reading a lot of reports about how more and more women are taking up STEM, right? I mean, when you were talking earlier about when you, you know, founded the company and you became CEO and you were in a totally male dominated industry, there, there is a difference now. There is a bit of a shift. I mean, even in, you know, Mazdar, which is Abu Dhabi Future Energy Company uh, located here in Mazdar City, they're one of the largest renewable energy companies in the world. More and more, we're seeing them employ engineers in renewable energy, and we see them on the fields with their hard hats and, you know, diving into the technology. Do you, do you see that shift? I do see a shift. It's not enough yet. I, I mean, I went to, I, I, I occasionally, I got an honorary degree recently, which was fantastic. And it was really, it was, it was wonderful to go and see all these graduates who are just at the beginning of their journey. But still, the, when you look at the engineering um, uh, departments, you still have a significant, a, a really small number of graduates that are female. So I think that, that there is still a challenge in terms of what we're seeing coming into the industry. And we need to just make it feel more attractive for women to join. 
screen, that they feel comfortable in their workplace, that they feel happy that they're going to be listened to. I mean, I, in some ways, I was very lucky. So I, I early on, when I left university, I did various sort of communications training. So I worked in a PR company. I then worked in hospital radio for a bit. I wasn't very good, but I, I did do that. <laughs> And, and I, all of those helped me with my communication skills. So when you sit around a board table full of men, you do, you can, and you're quite young because I was quite young as well at the time. You can feel quite intimidated, but you just need to keep saying things and putting your view across. Um, and what I hope is that we, by having more um, different uh, more women around the table, women will feel more comfortable talking out and, and doing their job, to be honest. Well, I guess, Juliet, you know firsthand the challenges that I guess women face in the sector and the value that greater diversity, you know, like actually having more diverse voices and more diverse thinking in business can, you know, can bring this potential to really help transform the energy sector. So it's really great to hear your work, you know, trying to encourage girls to get into STEM because it's a really, really pressing issue at the moment. I think what's really interesting is that we so undersell STEM because it is really exciting and it can be. I was I very briefly, I was a physics and maths teacher um, and, and particularly I, I had a one senior year sort of A-level um, group of girls and they were just fascinating. It was it was so much more about confidence that it was and trying to make them see why uh the science actually applied to their everyday lives and how they could use it. And, and once you made that translation, they got so much more into it. And that, that's what it's really exciting when you can see people's eyes light up and they get interested. Yeah, Mazdar City is partnered with the Global Parliament of Mayor. It's a, an organization that gathers, you know, mayors from around the world to discuss and, and move forward the agenda on pressing issues. And a lot of their work is obviously centered around sustainability. And one of their biggest agendas is talent. And, you know, it, it is very important to have that diversity for, for cities to become future forward and to become sustainable and to attract, um, you know, women to the workplace and to STEM. So it's it's not really there that yet, like you're saying, but it's good that the needle is moving in that direction. But Julia, I don't know how you have the time. I also know that you have a role in the British Growth Fund. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so so there I'm on an advisory board, which which actually is really enjoyable because um, these guys bring us lots of brilliant ideas of new technologies and different spaces of um, and, and areas that are moving that they're looking to invest in. And we go through them and we have presentations from these new businesses and we talk about them and talk about the potential growth and potential impact on climate particularly. Um, and yeah, I really enjoy sitting on that sitting on that advisory board because we get to see lots of fantastic new ideas and new businesses coming through. And it's and, and I guess I'm still at the heart of it. I'm still an, uh, an entrepreneur, and I love watching other entrepreneurs come up with ideas, figure out how they're going to do it, build a team, and then raise some money to do it. And it's it's just bringing all of that together is very exciting. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I, I read a report kind of a year ago that investment in sustainable tech kind of surpassed $1 billion, you know. So the potential for this further growth in London, it really is exciting. I can tell by the way that you were talking about the process, how great it is to be part of that process and really nurture talent here in, in the UK and London. Um, so I'm going to move on from that. Um, I'd love to talk about your work around Python. You know, everyone knows about it as a coding and programming language. But what about the environmental factors that we might not have considered? Because there's quite some glaring facts about Python that I think you're going to tell us now. <laughs> Yeah, so what's 
fascinating about Python, and this was one of the presentations we had at BGF, is that Python is a very simple language, obviously, for, for people to code in. And, and that's brilliant because it means you get much better accessibility for people to start to be coders. But the issue is, is that the way it codes, it has a central core code that then translates. So you're changing, you're passing data backwards and forwards constantly. So although it's very light on the coding, very heavy in terms of its energy usage and and what's fascinating about that is that it, it uses up to 50 50 times more energy to run a python program than it does to run a normal a sort of a c plus plus or something coded in it's much more complicated coding but obviously the the energy sense is, is much much bigger and 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 that is because obviously all these servers where you're using a lot of data needs a lot of energy. And I think um, I think the IT, I mean, the sort of data centers worldwide are now close to using similar energy levels as as the whole of the aerospace industry. So we, we have a big challenge in this area. Anyway, one of the one of the areas that we were looking at was um, actually, can you start to there's, there's another piece of software that you can run that basically improves the efficiency of Python. So you don't have to change all those people that you've trained because the last thing you want to do is, as you said, talent is so important that we need to maintain talent and grow talent. So you can't get them to learn another language necessarily. But there are, there are now interventions that we were seeing um, in terms of new software processes that could then improve that, that part and reduce the energy usage of some of these programming by up to 50 times, which would be amazing because that, that it's really interesting where we use our energy. Um, and we, we always go to the big things. So the car, the getting on a plane, um, our homes, but actually how we use software programs is, is increasingly becoming an important part of the energy usage worldwide. That sounds like a similar problem to cryptocurrencies and and the way you know all the data and all the energy is required to mine, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount of energy and data used to mine. And I was doing a conference actually, and there was one of these guys was they were a new startup in in digital currency and and particularly mining. And I and I was saying, well, listen, why don't you go and put your servers somewhere near a huge source of energy already? So like Iceland, or rather than trying to use existing energy systems because that that's the challenge if if we believe that bitcoin and and, and um, cryptocurrencies are the way forward then we're really going to have to think very hard about where we're going to use our energy sources because otherwise we just we're just creating yet another problem from a world where energy has been very cheap but is now much more expensive I actually, I, I want to speak about artificial intelligence. Um, is the city of London or any of the initiatives that you're working on using AI for sustainability or for sustainable tech? That's an interesting question. I mean, there's lots of different forms of AI, obviously. So there's, there's, there's high level AI and there's very simplistic AI. And I always feel that sometimes people overclaim on AI that they they, they say that they've got an AI system and they've got an automatic learning system, but it, it's not necessarily that sophisticated. There is some in, in behavioral sides, so where you're seeing um, sort of predictions of energy usage and therefore people are starting, um, so you start to, you get smart energy systems, but they're not really working yet. I mean, that's the problem. But it, it's a really interesting area where actually your home becomes a power station, essentially. So you walk in and it knows 
knows what you're going to do and it optimizes the energy usage within the home so that you can it can deal it can both export power to the grid but also use power when it's most efficient so you've got forms of ai but i wouldn't say they're deep ai they're quite simplistic ai that's being used that's the kind of issue with artificial intelligence at the minute. It's it's not new, but it's new to a lot of industries, you know, and how they're going to work it out, how they're going to make use of it. I think a lot of companies are still trying to navigate that at the moment. So I think the ideas are there. Yeah. And I think I think it's what what is true AI. I mean, and this is all the question. Is it the futuristic stuff where people start creating new avatars? Um, did you, I don't know whether you saw the Barbie AI thing recently where it was like AI created Barbies around the world and what they would look like, which is kind of slightly odd. Um, or, or because we seem to be embracing it as far as that's concerned, <laughs> but we haven't, I haven't seen it embraced as much um, in, in some of the areas where you might expect it. Well, I mean, we were, we were quite fortunate with this season of Future Forward um, to travel the world. We went to Stockholm and Jerusalem and Singapore, and we've learned so much about how cities are impacting the communities and allowing people to embrace sustainable living. Is there anything you can talk to us about in terms of, you know, initiatives that London may be first at or um, sustainable practices or how they are helping people embrace sustainable living um, that you can tell us about? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the way London is is starting to think about what does it put on its streets? How does it interact with um, people? Uh, and, and what is it doing with some of, some, of, some of the streets you've seen in London and now become much more pedestrianised? So actually encouraging people to walk down them, which makes a lot more sense if you've got a retail hub. So reducing the number of bus lanes, particularly places like Oxford Circus and Regent Street, so that you actually encouraging people to walk around, to interact with their communities, to be part of the communities. And also creating kind of natural spaces where people can sit and, and talk and interact. And I de- But I don't think that's an amazing, innovative step. I just think it's sort of how do you do that in a very old-fashioned city, which is what London is. London is difficult as a city because it's so old and it's so established. Trying to reshuffle things, because you can imagine you cut out a bus lane, everybody complains. But I think... I think um, <laughs> there have been various infrastructure plays. Um, Boris, whether you like him or not, did put some uh, bicycle highways all the way through London, which has transformed it, I would say, in terms of accessibility from a cycling point of view. And uh, although I always look slightly terrified at um, tourists who then get start cycling around London, people do cycle around London. I mean, you, people come to the city and they cycle. And that's not completely shifting but if you look at some of the more classic cities I mean I think Paris is now getting better um, some of the German cities obviously uh, the Netherlands and some of those cities are, are very fast forward in terms of their embracing in, in, in changing the culture of the city in terms of the way people experience it um, but I, I wouldn't say that London is at the leading edge but I would say that it's probably much harder because it has existed for so long and shifting some of those inbuilt infrastructure shifts, but also mindsets about what is London, what does it look like? 
So while London could be deemed as a leader, but it's not necessarily leading, you know, it's home to, you know, this large family of purpose-driven companies and initiatives all focusing on tackling climate change and promoting sustainability. So my last question to you, Juliet, are there any current sustainable innovative technologies being used in London that you'd like to mention or that we haven't mentioned? Or is there any innovations that you'd love to see being implemented in the city? There's an organisation called Huckle Tree, which is fantastic. So it's a little bit like WeWork, but all their buildings have been redone in a sustainable way as much as possible. So they've either rebuilt them, repurposed them. But also what I love about Huckle Tree is that they have a supportive community around the people who work in there. So they, 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 they invest, but also they have a bunch of mentors. They look after these. They really try to create these working hubs where new ideas and new technologies come forwards. And, and I think that's what needs to, for London, that's what will make a big shift where you get these hubs of entrepreneurs coming together um, and learning from each other. Because the thing is, once, once you've been through the process of startup, raising money, all those kind of things, it, it, although you might have a different technology and a new idea, so there are various issues related to IP, deployment and technology, cost of technology, but it's actually the community that you need. And that's kind of what I missed when I was growing up, I guess. Um, I, I missed having a community of people around me to, get, to, to make me more feel more confident in some of the risks I might be taking. Um, but I think I'm seeing some of these fantastic hubs grow up in London now. And that for me is where you actually can see the real shift in places like London is where you get new companies coming together and really working together. And that's what's exciting. That's what I think is really exciting about London. Yeah. And is it true that uh, most of the UK's economy is actually led by SMEs? Yeah. So, I mean, this is this is one of the things. So although we have some very large companies obviously based and headquartered in London, so if the majority of people in the UK are employed by SMEs and it is the heartland of the drive of the economy. And so actually having lots of entrepreneurs starting up new businesses that are really going to feed into that is so important for keeping the vibrancy, actually. I mean, I find it that's where you see the excitement. That's where you see the change and the shift. And very large companies can do innovation, but it's it's much I, I where I've seen it work best is where you have large companies working with much smaller companies and the smaller companies bringing that real change and, and pace that can't, large companies can't always match. And then when they work together, you get this real shift um, moving forward. And on that note, Juliet, um, we're going to end the conversation. You have been a fantastic guest for our last podcast. It's been so fascinating hearing about your journey, what inspired you to start your career, just the tenacity of your personality, just how you've navigated your way through the renewable energy sector and kind of been a trailblazer, a trailblazing woman in this sector. It's been really a real pleasure listening to your story. Thank you. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Naveen. That's been, it's been great. Really good fun. Thank you for listening to the final episode of the second season of Future Forward. It's been a fascinating journey around the globe, and we've learned so much about what we are all collectively doing to reshape the future of sustainable tech. Lucy, thank you for joining us on this trip. Both seasons of Future Forward are available wherever you get your podcast, and season two is also on YouTube. So go and check that out. And until we find each other again, thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.